Recovery Elevator, episode 423. I got to see what it felt like to remember everything I said the night before and to feel a little bit of dignity around how I was moving through the world instead of just this constant shame. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Laura. She's 45 years old from Boston, Massachusetts, and took her last drink on September 27th, 2014. Great job, Laura. I wanna say thank you to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Listeners, Recovery Elevator will be in Atlanta, Georgia over Memorial Day weekend for a conference-style event on Sunday, May 28th at 7 p.m. Then we have our annual flagship retreat in the mountains of Big Sky Country in Bozeman, Montana, August 9th through the 13th. Go to our events page for more information. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. And before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature was founded by a father and son in addiction recovery. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD products are specially formulated to help you face the exceptional challenges of recovery, and we are so grateful to have them as our sponsor. Beat your cravings with their Detox Blend. If you are interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. The interview today with Laura is a bit longer than normal, so my intro is going to be a bit shorter. And spoiler alert, the Laura from Boston, Massachusetts on today's podcast is the same Laura who wrote the Quitlet book, We Are the Luckiest, and the book that came out a few weeks ago, Push Off From Here. Laura is a rock star. You guys are going to love the interview. For the intro today, I want to talk about a quote from a comedian named Duncan Trussell. He says, some poor phoneless fool is probably sitting next to a waterfall somewhere, totally unaware of how angry and scared he's supposed to be. Now, I cracked up when a friend sent me this meme last week. And again, here's the quote. Some poor phoneless fool is probably sitting next to a waterfall somewhere, totally unaware of how angry and scared he's supposed to be. The more I podcast, the more books I read on addiction, the more I learn about past cultures, the more conversations I have with those who have quit drinking, the more I realize that addictions are adaptations to unhealthy environments. In 2023, to live in this world, one needs barbiturates, tranquilizers, sedatives, stimulants, screens, or a combination of those to survive. Of course, this isn't everyone, but rates of addiction, disease, unrest, unease, inflammations, cancers are all unfortunately on the rise, which I feel is directly tied to the environment or how we are living. So if it's the environment that is creating these seemingly prolific conditions of unrest or addictions, then what are we to do? This is where I think recovery work is so exciting because here's our task. We must orientate ourselves towards a new horizon and we cannot look back 
because looking back may have catastrophic consequences, aka drinking again. It is our task to create a reality that does not require numbing agents to survive in. We are tasked with creating a world for ourselves and others where we feel connected, worthy, and part of a community. Recovery is not about new world exploration or adding more to your plate, but restoring the circuitry we were born with or of our ancestors and coming back to the pack, to the herd, to the community. Now, I'll admit, some days I feel we are fucked as a species, but I know we will right the ship. In fact, it's already happening. And to go even further with this, I think people who struggle with addiction, those who have recovered, done the inner work, are the cohort who pulls humanity back into a healthier homeostasis. Addiction, in fact, could be what forces us to come together, put our differences aside, and start loving each other. I do think technology will be the greatest addiction human beings will face, but there are already enough humans anchored in recovery for us to be just fine. Again, we are tasked collectively to build a reality that doesn't require numbing agents to survive in. This is exciting stuff in my opinion. If you want to be that phoneless fool by a waterfall, then be it. I want to be a phoneless fool while playing the ukulele on a beach in Costa Rica. Sign me up. So this is our job, listeners, to create a life for ourselves and others that doesn't require alcohol for wholeness. I'm up for the task. How about you? And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Laura. In a perfect world, we all want to feel our best at all times. However, through life and recovery, I've had to learn to accept the wobbles that come with this journey. You've all heard me talk about my dip days. For me, managing these has come hand in hand with using tools that I have learned through therapy. I love knowing that I have agency and that even when I'm not feeling great, I can feel empowered to take positive action. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Laura, how are you? Hi. So good to be here. Yeah, Laura, fantastic. I'm excited to be here as, as well. I'm excited to share your story with the Recovery Elevator audience. Laura, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? September 27th, 2014. I also quit drinking the same month, the same year. Fantastic stuff. Laura, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun, Laura? The fun question. I'm always terrible at answering that, so I'll do everything else first. Uh, I do have a family. I uh, have one daughter who is 14, just turned 14 days ago. She was five years old when I got sober. Uh, her dad and I are have been divorced for about 10 years, but I am now newly engaged uh, as of last fall. Congrats. So that's exciting. Thank you. I am uh, 45 years old. I'm from, I live in Boston, originally from Colorado. And what I do for a living now is I write books and I founded a company called The Luckiest Club, which is a global sobriety support community. I founded that in the pandemic. 
kind of on accident and it's one of the the best things that I've ever done and I also create I also teach courses now and then although much less now I'm trying to steer all my efforts more towards writing uh, before that I had a long career in marketing and advertising so I've had kind of two lives as far as work goes all right fun. what do you like to do for fun there we go <laughs> wait a second I know this is one of those departments where I need some improvement uh, or maybe I just need to be okay with the things that I think are fun that other people wouldn't. <laughs> um, no, I love, I read a lot, uh, a lot of books. I'm a huge reader and find so much joy in that. I play uh, beach volleyball, which is a newish thing that I found when I met my fiance. And so that that is just all fun. There's no, there's no uh, other thing going on when I'm doing that. Like there is when I'm reading, you know, there's always the author mind going at the same time as the reader mind. And yeah, I travel a lot too. I guess that's a, that could be listed as a fun thing. I, I have gotten a lot into sobriety, actually a lot more travel. It's shockingly fun to travel. For sure. And, and listeners, while we're recording this, Laura is in Cancun, Mexico. I was going to ask her the temperature, but I don't want to hear it because right now it's negative <laughs> 19 don't. degrees in Bozeman, Montana. Oh my God. Yeah. Ouch. And, yeah. At home in Boston, it's uh, like there's a massive storm. So you yeah. don't want to know the temperature. You could imagine. I don't. It's not negative 19. Yeah. And, and we're doing the Zoom. Yeah, I can see that you're wearing a San Diego Padres hat. Are you a, a baseball fan, a Padres fan? I am a San Diego fan, <laughs> a, new, a recent San Diego fan. I'm, I'm a sort of baseball fan. I mean, I live in Boston and a half for over 20 years, so kind of happens to you. But uh, this is, I have, we, we travel to San Diego a lot. And so it's kind of my, where I plan to maybe spend the, the later years. And so this yeah. is actually my fiance's hat. Cool. Yeah, it's a great place. <laughs> it's a great looking hat too. Laura, let's do what we came here to do. Let's chat about your journey into alcohol addiction and your journey out of alcohol addiction. Why don't you talk to us when you first started drinking and and when you when you recognized it was becoming a problem and that alcohol was no longer serving you? Mm -hmm. I started when I was 15, but I didn't dive right into the deep end of the pool right away. I was I played sports in high school. And that kind of kept me away and a little afraid of drinking. So my dad got sober when I was 15 for 10 years. And so I had a, I had a good amount of fear about alcohol, but I started to drink and dabble high school parties and stuff like that. And it really picked up when I went to college. Uh, I went to like many people do, a big old party school. I went to Colorado State and I went all in. And I, I mean, I had a fake ID on the in the first week. And then I went to, Bo I moved to Boston right after undergrad. Uh, and I was shocked that people actually drink. I thought drinking would sort of slow down once you entered the workforce. And that was not the case, at least in advertising. It, we drank more. And I worked for a startup for the first few years, and it was just it, constant. Uh, there were no boundaries between really work and play. So all through my 20s, I found people who drank like me. I would say I knew even from the time I was, say, 17 that I liked drinking 
more and differently than other people did. I had this gnawing sense, but it wasn't something that I worried about. It wasn't something that I thought, oh, I'm going to have to stop one day. I just thought I'd have to to watch that mm-hmm. maybe. And I, and I did notice that I felt more shame than it seemed like other people did about their drinking when I would black out, which was often, or remember things I said or did, I would feel just racked with shame the next day and anxiety. And I noticed that my friends didn't do that. They really genuinely laughed things off. Whereas I was laughing in like this uh, nervous, scared way. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them were feeling that, but it didn't seem like it. I didn't suffer many consequences, like big ones through my 20s, uh, just a lot of blackouts. You know, I, I say that, and yet I had an unwanted pregnancy. <laughs> I had uh, really put myself in some dangerous situations, especially with men in my 20s. But there was nothing that was as big as what would happen later in my 30s. And then in my 30s, when I became a mom, my drinking really skyrocketed. So I I became a mom when I was 31. And it just changed drinking for me then my body was different, my anxiety was through the roof. And it stopped working like it used to at that time, I had to drink more to feel any amount of relief. And like my, my window of relief just got smaller and smaller. Laura, I want to interject and ask about when you said it stopped working. Right. Mm. If you could expand on that a little bit, because that's a tricky spot to be that we'll all get if we ride an alcohol addiction long enough where we go, oh, it stops working. And then we double down on quantity, right? We start drinking more. The frequency increases. But then there's a mental chatter that begins. It's like, oh shit, uh, this is becoming less effective. It's it's less therapeutic. I'm getting less enjoyment out of this. I'm I'm not drinking anymore to feel good. I'm drinking to feel normal. So what was that like yeah. for you when you realized that wasn't working? Yeah, it was terrifying. And a lot of it, I think, was that when you become a parent, you can't just pull the ripcord and shut off your brain and say, fuck it. I don't care what happens for the rest of the night or the morning. I'm just going to sleep till I sleep. You, you're hyper aware that there's now this being that you're responsible for. And so the relief or the release just wasn't there anymore. I couldn't turn that part of my brain off and add to the fact that you're exhausted. I went through postpartum, uh, big time depression and anxiety. And so what it felt like was it was a panic. It felt like I I hit a panic button Hmm. because I, I was very reliant on alcohol at that point. Like my, my uh, pregnancy was a white knuckle experience. I realized actually when I was pregnant, how much I relied on alcohol to help me out, to process, to, to, I sort of had realized that I outsourced all my anxiety and the processing of any feelings to alcohol. And I couldn't do that anymore. So I was just like a ball of nerves and feelings and angst mm-hmm. with nowhere to go. And so that's, that's how it felt. And that's when my worries really started to about my drinking started to become more real. So you're right, you double down on quantity. It's a tricky situation too, because you're doubling down on quantity, but you're doubling down on your like as a parent, your vigilance is you're double down on your hypervigilance too. So like what I said about the relief window getting smaller and smaller, I felt like I was chasing that relief that I used to feel that 
hour, two hours, however long. And it was just, it was maybe 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. Like I was chasing this anxiety, trying to snuff it out. Um, and it was very elusive. Like I couldn't. So I started drinking earlier in the day too. You know, that's another thing that happens is like the, the hangovers are more intense and the cravings are more intense. So I started to drink at noon, two, three. And when you're a new mom and I worked from home for a while, like no one's going to tell you not to do that. It's actually encouraged among mothers drinking during play dates and all of that, which is a whole topic we could talk about. You know, the mommy wine culture is very encouraging of drinking and over drinking. But anyway, back to the the main story. I I had a D, I got a DUI in the summer of 2013, a really, really bad DUI, meaning my blood alcohol was like 0.28 and I spent the night in jail. And even the next morning I was in denial about that I got a DUI. I just told my friends that it's fine. I, I just got pulled over. Okay. So you told your friends it's fine. I just got pulled over, but you and me both know 0.28, that's, that's going for it. And I've had a DUI and it was around that as well. You told your friends, no big deal. It's fine. But was there an inner voice going, oh shit, oh shit, things are derailing fast. And then were there attempts to moderate, to cut back, to scale back? Yes. Uh, there was the oh shit voice, but man, I try. I worked, I was so, I had just separated from my husband. There was a lot going on personally. And so I needed the alcohol and to believe that I could manage it more than ever. And so I was just committed to that. But there was, you know, I, I can see in hindsight that I had, that I was in an oh shit moment because I only told friends about, I only told my friends the, the truth about the DUI who would tell me it was no big deal. The friends who would say, oh yeah, like I've had one or they, you know, I, you know, the people that are going to co-sign your drinking because maybe they have something invested in your drinking or, or whatever. And the people who are going to not do that. Co-sign your drinking. You are an author. That is a great line right there. I love it. But so we know that, right? This just, friend's going to respond this way. This friend's going to respond this way. I'm going to choose to share th these details. And this is part of the exhaustion too, is the lying that you have to start to keep track of who knows what and, and what, ex what version of this story did I tell people? Oh, the length of the justification we go to. Right. And, and so the DUI in 2013, we're still about, uh, you know, 13 months away from your alcohol free date, closing the gap. And uh, let's hear it. Yes. Yeah, so May Memorial Day weekend of 2013 was the DUI. July of 2013 was when I went to my brother's wedding in Colorado, brought my daughter, then four years old, who was the flower girl. And I left her in our hotel room that entire night alone because I was blacked out drunk and somewhere else. And she, I write about this in my book, in my first book. Um, so this is not like, I, I'm, if I sound like I'm just reporting this information, like it's no big deal. I'm just very used to talking about it. Sure. Um, it was absolutely the worst night of my life, but I woke up the next morning to text from my mother saying, where the hell are you? We have... Alma, your daughter, and and like panic text and, and angry text. My daughter had found her way through the hotel, uh, and by grace, the hotel staff led her to my mom. That was the beginning of the end for me because my family, it, I, I wasn't just any any cognitive dissonance that they had about how bad it was was gone. Sure. Right? Any denial that they had it was gone, and now I had an official problem. They were scared for me 
but especially for, for my daughter. And so I had my mother watching me, my brother watching me, my dad, who found out later, watching me, and my ex-husband watching me because they told him. And the stakes were, if I didn't get my shit together, I was going to lose custody of my daughter. And that forced me to go to my first 12-step meeting and to start to try to get sober. Uh, and then that year, plus between September, uh, sorry, between the summer of 2013 and the fall of 2014, uh, I spent m- far more days sober in that year plus than not, but I didn't stop until I stopped. Laura, a couple things I want to unpack there. You said you almost talked nonchalantly about leaving your daughter in the hotel room, but I think that's the importance of sharing your story and owning your story so much. I've said my story so many times that they're just words. There's no emotional attachment to the darkest and deepest, most shameful moments anymore. So thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being honest and sharing the moments that are propelling you into sobriety. The second thing is you hit already, we call it burning the ships. You can either do it voluntarily on your own or the ships eventually are going to get set ablaze on their own, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the ships were burnt, when the hotel staff got your daughter to your mom, your ex-husband was reaching out to you, you were under the, under the care of family support, like the ships are burnt. Those things, you can't keep that secret anymore. Was there almost a relief of like, oh, finally the gig is up. You said it was the beginning of the end. Was there a relief of, oh, finally it's out? Or was it like double down? Oh shit. Like we're still, we're still going down the, the drinking path. No, I felt no relief. I was mm-hmm. angry. I was two things. I was angry And I was mortified that my reaction was not, this has to stop now because it involved my daughter, the thing I loved most in the world. I was, but I was angry. I was angry that I'd been caught. I was angry that I had to stop. I was angry that all these people around me drink a whole hell of a lot, but I was the one with the problem. I was very angry and I was mortified and terrified that that was my reaction, not the relief that you said. Hmm. I didn't feel relief for a while, like a good six, eight months. I was mostly just pissed. I wanted to undo that night and every other time that painted me into this corner. Okay. So you went to your first 12-step meeting. Walk us through how that inner perspective switched to pissed, angry, upset, to wait a second. This is the journey. This Mm -hmm. is the path of least resistance, meaning sobriety and alcohol-free life. How did you make that flip? And walk us up to your sobriety date. Yeah, the first first AA meeting I went to was it was not great. <laughs> I mean, I did it I did it because my back was against the wall, like I said, you know, and I went because I didn't know what else to do. I knew exactly two people in the world that were sober. At that point my dad was no longer sober, but I had been exposed to AA through him and I had one other friend uh, my old roommate from college who had been sober for a couple of years. And she had been hinting to me for a while, like you're, it's your turn now, you know, like she knew. And so she was the first person that I talked to when this happened at the wedding. And she said, okay, it's time. Like, this is time you're going to go. And so I went, uh, you know, she encouraged me to go. She told me what to expect. It was a very small meeting in Boston common on a viciously hot day. It was 12 other women, women, and which forced me because it was such a small meeting, it was like round robin and I had to say something, Mm -hmm. which was a gift in hindsight. And I opened my mouth and God knows what came out, but it was lots of tears and snot. And I kind of told them what had just happened with my daughter. And I met after the meeting, this woman, another mother came up to me and she said, look, 
I'm a mom too, and I know exactly how you feel, and you need to know you can push off from here. You can leave that all behind. And I never saw her again, but I remember those words. They're the title of the, the new book, and there's a there's a whole story in there. But those words really carried me through the next year plus, because when I drank during during that time, you know, and you reach this place where the bridges ha- were burned, and I love that metaphor, they were burned. So I was drinking alone, privately. I was drinking at nothing. Like, what are you drinking at at that point? You know, I was just um, searching for some kind of third door where I didn't have to get sober, but could keep on drinking. And I went to a lot of meetings in that time, and I met a lot of people. That helped close the gap tremendously. I think I, I don't think I would be alive if not for that community I first found in AA. And I started to spend a lot of time sober, honestly, to get a taste of what it feels like to wake up without hangovers, to get my brain back at work, which was like the first thing to come back. And it was so amazing. I got promoted to vice president. I was like flying at work. And I got to see what it felt like to remember everything I said the night before and to feel a little bit of dignity around how I was moving through the world instead of just this constant shame. And most importantly, probably for my story is I started to write and share openly about what was going on with me uh, on a blog, on a separate social media account. And that act of telling the truth and sharing helped me figure out my story, start to untangle my story, but it connected me. I mean, the truth is is a relief, right? And I hadn't been telling the truth for maybe my whole life. So when we get to finally September of 2014, I had a little momentum with writing. I had built up a lot of sober time. And I just honestly reached a point where I was too tired. I knew I, I knew that there was nothing left for me in drinking anymore. And I stopped promising the, the thing that shifted on that day after my last drink that was different than all the times before was I woke up so exhausted and and had such anxiety that I, I literally thought, I can't feel this level of anxiety for one more day or I will not survive it. And I thought, fuck it, I'm never going to tell my, I'm never going to make the promise that I'm not drinking ever again. I'm just going to do today. That's it. And if I change my mind tomorrow, I change my mind tomorrow. And I did everything in my power to make that happen for that day. Laura, I want to talk about the sobriety process because there are some mis- misconceptions in, in the sobriety world about quitting drinking. A lot of people think it's one and done. That was not the case for me. And it sounds like it was not the case for you. It's almost a concept term stacking days, right? You try to get your legs here, a little more legs there, a night sober there, maybe two nights sober there where the previous months and years there were a zero weekend? nights sober. For <laughs> sure, week. right? A fe- first weekend sober is uncharted waters, right? So it's almost this gaining of confidence before you push off from here. I love the title. I love the story of how you got the title before you push off from there into the world of sobriety. But then there's another big value bomb you dropped. Yeah, you were so tired of making promises for the rest of your life. You just did it for today. That comes back to the greatest teaching, I think, in the in the 12-step world, which is one day at a time. And another thing is we often hear, you often think it's a fiery rock bottom moment. Ah, but really, I think it's about 50-50 split on this podcast. Yes, yeah, some people do have a fiery rock bottom, 
but the other people you hear it, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You reach a, you reach a moment where you don't think the body at the cellular level can handle any more of that vibration anxiety inside the body. So it's September 27, 2014. The body is going haywire with alcohol, not in your system. The anxiety is there. How did you do it? How did you push off from there? Oh, I cried a lot. Uh, and then I got ready for work <laughs> and I rode the train into the city listening to Mark Marin, uh, listening to Dak Shepard on Mark Marin for like the fifth time. Cause I actually talk a lot about recovery in that episode with both of them being sober. And look, I had built change. You you touched on the process that change, uh, you know, that, that it's not overnight. And of course it's not. I mean, change, if you actually study behavioral change, there are many phases. You know, there's pre-contemplation, contemplation, education. There's, I won't go through them all, but like it is a process. And so at that point on September 28th, I... I knew what to do. I knew how to walk my feet to a meeting. I knew how to show up in a meeting. I People in the meeting knew who I was. I knew who to call. I had probably 25 numbers of people who were sober in my phone if I choose to use them. And so I had these tools. And I also, the, the, the big thing I also started doing, I called it stop to stop getting on the train, was all the little tiny, teeny tiny ways I was deceiving myself throughout the day or the week and telling myself it was no big deal if I skipped meetings. No big deal if I didn't connect with someone sober that day. No big deal if I chose to, to take my daughter to a place that served alcohol for dinner versus a place that didn't. I removed all the wine glasses from my apartment. You know, all these little ways that were sort of full of shit and, and we know it, or if we really were honest, we, we know it. I told everybody because I had all these little fire doors that I left open in case I someday wanted to drink people at work, friend in like the third circle of friends who would still go out with me. And I, I told everybody there was no person left who didn't know. So in that way, I, I stopped getting on that train well before the train left the station mm-hmm. that would eventually lead me to drink. And I, but I did just do it that one day at a time. And, and cause f- this is the other part is forever made me just full of despair, thinking of all the things that I would miss potentially down the line. If I still wasn't drinking filled me with despair. It didn't make sense. I didn't even know what that meant, but I could do the one day thing. And I didn't plan for it to be my last day. I didn't know that it would be. I think that's also a very common thing thing. I was so humbled at that point that I knew my words really didn't mean anything. So I just did that day and it, it stuck. Laura, what you just said, you were so humbled at that point. Humility, I think is a positive trait in in humans and humanity. What did it feel like to be totally humbled by something that on the outside, there's a narrative and a stigma that everybody else is drinking normally, but me. Yeah. Humility. It's so mixed because for women, I think it's a little bit different. I had been told either implicitly or explicitly all the time to basically like sit up and shut down. Like you don't know. And so this message of humility, I pushed on that so hard. Like it's hard to tell the difference between stubbornness and um, I guess self-righteousness and actually trusting your intuition. And so 
I guess I mean this all to say that humility was tricky and it was really hard for me to accept. I am very much someone who detrimentally self-reliant and to tell anyone that I needed help. um, That was like the last, that was the last thing to go. Right. Is I still, even on those, those last days, I still couldn't be honest with people, even the people in AA who really didn't care and really wouldn't judge me. I still had a hard time telling them the honest truth because my self-judgment was so thick. So that that humility piece was extremely painful and hard. And you just can't do it alone. Like that's something I still have to accept all the time is counting myself in. You just can't do it alone. It's why I tell people when when they say, what is one thing you would tell someone who is trying to get sober? It's like, you got to open your mouth. Sorry. So Laura, this was a question that I wrote down that I wanted to chat with you with, and there are, life is full of paradoxes and the recovery world is full of paradoxes. That's not a bad thing, but I've grappled with this as well is there's a statement. You just said it. You cannot do this alone. I will stamp that once, twice, three times again, (laughs) but on the flip side of that, and you have these nine essential truths, you have one of them is you can't do this alone. And the next one is only you can do it right? I feel the same way. I've said on the podcast, you can't do this alone. But at the end of the day, somebody can't hold your hand 24 hours a day. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think any real wisdom is paradox. You have to be able to hold both things and one doesn't and see that one doesn't cancel each other out. You're right. You can't, we can't do it alone. You, I've, I know exactly zero people who have been able to get and stay sober alone. And no one was no one was going to sit and hold my hand or watch me or even know like all the secrets that i would keep for myself like if i if i'm on vacation or if i'm on an airplane look no one would know if i drink right now and i i use that to drink many times like that's the moment where you have to apply only you can do it right so it's some it, it's like when when and where do you apply each of those things they they carry equal weight they sound like they contradict each other, but they're 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 not. They don't. I agree. I see somehow they balance, right? You can't do this alone. I think that's honing in our our true species, the nature of our species. If we were pack animals, we we have evolved to to be with the pack. So you can't do this alone. This this brings us back into the pack. But only you can do it. Yes, we are microorganisms that are part of the macro as well. So we're almost coming back into the herd, but we are redefining who we ourselves individually. So we are connecting with the self. And the pack at the same time. I like that. Earlier, Laura, let's talk about the tool pen to paper or fingers to keyboard or thumbs on your phone, whatever. And you you link that with honesty. There's a book called Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke Mm -hmm. and talks about the power of radical honesty or being honesty, how dopamine is released in your brain when you're honest. And this whole journey in an alcohol-free life, you, you first have to get honest with yourself. Sometimes that's looking in your mirror, the the sick and tired of being sick and tired. But you know, we think burning the ships with other people, that's honesty. Yes, that's there. Huge, huge step forward. But sometimes it happens internally, one-on-one, you and a pen and paper. One reason for me that I like to do this is the mind goes way faster than my pen and paper can go. So it actually slows down my brain. I cannot write as fast as the mind can go. So it slows me down. Um, and it's good to get these thoughts on paper. How has writing, journaling, been effective for you and, and and maybe comment a little bit about how listeners can do some basic exercises. Sure. Well, writing is, is scientifically proven to be therapeutic and emotionally regulating. 
Um, there's a lot of research on it. The, the first study that really documented it was the Pennebaker study. My experience echoes yours or mirrors yours, that my mind moves very fast and it for and writing things down forces me to slow down. And I think of it as like pulling a thread. So say you have this knotted big ball of yarn, right? All your feelings and stories and thoughts. Writing forces you to pull the thread and sometimes like undo a little knot here, or like, you know, help the thread out so that it can, it can untangle. And slowly as you write, you straighten out this, this yarn, this ball, this ball into, you know, something sensical. And you, in that process, you metabolize quite literally feelings, thoughts, writing is like is like digging too. It's like excavating. So a lot of times what we think about consciously is way up here. That's all that chatter. And when we start to write, we dig down and down and down and it brings up and out what is in our subconscious. So we can make conscious things that we were not aware of before. And once we make things conscious, anything's possible, right? So you think, for example, I'm just a giant piece of shit. That's my story. End of end end of the day. <laughs> you know, I I there's all these things that have happened that I've done because of my drinking. I can't stop. I've hurt everybody. I'm just a giant piece of shit. That might be the story you're running, but you put pen to paper and you write and you write and you write and you just let it flow out. And where you may land, where you will probably land, is in a story that's much more complicated and compassionate. And you might find out, oh, I'm a person in a lot of pain. I'm, in a, I'm a person with a lot of grief. I'm a person who has hurt people, yes, but I've been hurt too. And there's goodness in there, right? And so writing does that. It brings what is unconscious into consciousness. Jung has this amazing quote. And, and until we bring what is unconscious into consciousness, it will direct our life and, and we will call it fate. So we'll just be bumbling along, bumbling along, thinking, oh, this is just how my life is, you know, this is what it was meant to be like. And when we draw consciousness out of our ourselves, when we become aware of our patterns, of our genuine thoughts and feelings of what's beneath the surface, we can start to see and direct our lives more, right? We can start to be more intentional. We can start to have pres awareness and uh, and presence around what we're actually doing and thinking and feeling. So that's a long answer. I have a lot, I, I believe so strongly in the power of writing and what you said, you know, for a reader, anyone can write. That's the thing. Just about anyone can write. If you have a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper, you have a computer, you have a phone, you can write. And the research shows that it, you only need 15 minutes of personal writing which just means writing about your feelings about something that happened. 15 minutes for four days shows market improvements and well-being, health, and more. Laura, you have a fantastic line in your new book, Push Off From Here, that I underlined and put an asterisk by, and it said, you can't hate yourself into sobriety. Talk to us about that. Yes. We live in a culture that largely believes in punishment as a way to achieve our goals, you know, restriction, punishment, shame, basically beating ourselves into submission, right? To have more control, more willpower, more productivity. Like if you just 
apply enough pressure, and it's usually negative pressure uh, and negative self-talk, you'll get to where you need to go. And it never works. It doesn't, it, 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 this is also something that's backed by a lot of research. It just doesn't work. If, um, you know, great resource on this is all of Kristen Neff's work. He wrote Self-Compassion and other books. We cannot hate ourselves into sobriety or any new way of being. We don't respond to that well. We just basically recreate the cycle over and over again and prove to ourselves how bad we are, what failures we are. So it doesn't work. But this is tricky for sobriety because a lot of the messages we get from the outside are self-beating messages. You know, you're broken, have more control. Why can't you just get your shit together? The li- I don't even need to say all the things that that we we hear, right? Because we say them to ourselves. But those are real. You can't overstate the impact that those messages have. So we have to make the radical choice to love on ourselves anyway, to have grace for ourselves anyway, compassion for ourselves anyway. That was the only way I was ever going to get sober. Laura, I tried to self-diatribe my way into recovery and sobriety as well, and it did not work. <laughs> so I love that. And, and listeners right now, the way you you recognize this is happening is with awareness, that inner critic, oh, you effing piece of you know crap. Why can't... Mm-hmm. Once that happens, the bigger you has got to say, wait a second, that that type of language doesn't work. Laura, Laura, talk to us about the new book, Push Off From Here. Talk to us about TLC. When I when I hear TLC, I still think waterfalls, but that's changing. <laughs> I love the the lucky club. I, I love was on that. your yeah. I thought about that joke before we, we recorded. So nice. <laughs> and, well done. And um, but I was on your website the other day. It looks fantastic. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the Lucky Club, and, and also let let us know where we can find it. I know when this episode drops, the book is out. But where can mm-hmm. we find you on Instagram? Where can we find your website? Great. Push off from here. The beginning of that came from that meeting that I talked about with that woman saying that phrase to me, and it just stuck. And I started saying it to other people over time. And the book is about. So when I was about two years sober or so, a woman wrote me who was, her sister was struggling with alcohol addiction and she didn't know what to say to her sister. So she wrote to me and said, what would you have wanted to hear? And I wrote her this long letter. And I said, at the end of it, if this is all too much, you can just give her this list. This will say everything that she needs to hear. This this is everything, everything she needs to hear. And in that list, there were nine points and they are one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, you are loved. And nine, we will never stop reminding you of these things. So those nine things existed as they're sort of, I I really, they stuck with me. and, And then they stuck with other people too. I could tell they became the epigraph for my first book. And when I started the Luckiest Club in 2020, I decided that they would be sort of the maybe mission statement or like sort of the backbone of our culture. So we say them at the end of every meeting that we have. We read them. The the members develop shorthand talk for the nine things. So they'll say, you know, if we're in a meeting and people will, will share something really heartfelt or difficult, the members will chime in on chat and say number eight, number eight, number eight, which is you are loved. So they very much became a part of the culture. And 
Yet it also became clear that people wanted to understand like what the, what was actually behind them? What does it actually mean to take responsibility? What does it mean when you say this is unfair? <laughs> what like how is that helpful? And so push off from here is an exploration of those nine things. Perfect. And in, in the website, there's there's a community and there's a couple yes. of tiers. One's is like the monthly and there's a there's a higher tier for monthly for extra support, I imagine, right? Yes. Sorry. The, so the Luckiest Club is a sobriety support community. We run 40 meetings a week. They're not AA meetings. They're our own format. We uh, accept all paths to recovery. We don't do dogma and we believe there is no one path. We uh, charge $22 a month for 40 meetings a week, which is like a dime a meeting. And we have an amazing app, an amazing community, uh, all kinds of programming, like book clubs and running clubs. And we have about 65 subgroups based on location. We have members all over the world. And uh, then, yes, we have an academy where people can go deeper and um, do workshops and coaching and things like that. And how can they find that? It is theluckiestclub.com. Theluckiestclub.com. And and what's your Instagram handle? Laura underscore McCowan. Gotcha. Again, the book is Push Off From Here. I'm about 75 pages in and I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it. It's a great book. Um, I got a couple more questions before we hit the rapid fire round. You, you know, in your book, you had a line that says, you are not broken. You are part of a broken paradigm. Mm-hmm. Over that. Yes. This is part of chapter one. It's not your fault. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you just cannot date the impact of culture and where we hold alcohol in our culture on drinkers and people who end up having a problem with drinking and just our general attitudes towards alcohol, period. Alcohol is loved and prized and really not seen as a drug. It's seen as this sort of benign substance and not even benign. It's like this accessory that belongs in every moment of our lives, right? It is for me, I thought that's just what adults do. And that's sort of what it means to like be living right is to be drinking and and over drinking and celebrating and having wine with your girlfriends. There was not any area of life, certainly any area that involved other people or connection that where alcohol was not welcome, accessible and celebrated. And so, and, and that's not just me, of course, it's a huge industry. It is marketed as being healthy in moderation. Uh, and it is marketed as being the answer to a lot of problems, especially in the last 10 to 15 years for women and mothers. So, you know, and, and beyond before that, I mean, just, just watch Mad Men. Like that's all you need to know about alcohol culture, right? It is everywhere in every shot, every moment. And that's not an over that's not an exaggeration. I worked in advertising and, and uh, there are many other industries that are like that. It is just so much a part of how we live. And yet it is it is the most dangerous drug. It causes more death than all the other drugs combined, including illegal drugs. And it's been largely protected by big alcohol as you know. any messages about the real dangers of it have been snuffed out. Until very, very recently, when the Lancet finally came out and said there is no safe amount of alcohol. And now it's starting to enter some mainstream media. But for the last 40, 50 years, it's been 
this giant gaslighting project. And that's what I mean of we are, you are part of a broken paradigm. When we, t- we tell people, this is, this is the way, this is what you should do, except for when they cross that like invisible line to have a problem. And then it's like, oh, oh, you're, you're supposed to love it, but like not that much. You're supposed to like it, but not like that. And now you need to go away and deal with it somewhere in a dark room and not share it with anybody else and not talk about it because you're going to ruin the party. And that's really effed up, right? So that's what I mean by that. Yeah, I, I track with all that. I do, I do. One more question before we hit the rapid fire round. Where do you think addiction is going? When you say addiction, do you mean like the alcohol yeah, industry? I, I, yeah, I mean, are we going to, or as a culture, are we going to like just phase out of it? Or is addiction going up? Is it going down? Yeah, addiction is unfortunately going up went way up in the pandemic not surprisingly women are drinking more than ever this the other side of that is the younger generations are drinking less than previous generations so that's positive and if they're drinking less it stands to assume that addiction would go would start to drop but we don't know that yet i don't think we'll ever phase out of addiction it is a it is absolutely human condition and of course it's not just the alcohol it's mental health it's systems that are failing us, um, the healthcare system. I mean, we could have an entire conversation about, about that alone, just the systems. But I personally in, and I don't just think this, it's my algorithm telling me this or my sort of bubble of experience. When I got sober in 2014, nobody was talking about alcohol publicly. I mean, I can't say nobody, but very few people. It's like celebrities once in a while would come out and say that they were sober, right? And there were some movies that depicted addiction, but it was always in this very specific 12-step way with very specific language. And it was always very, there's people who can drink, which is most people. And then there's these unfortunates who can't. And that has shifted a lot in the past 10 years. I mean, you have a podcast. I started a podcast in 2015. We were like among the first female podcasts to talk about addiction. And now I can't even count how many there are. Thousands. And it's amazing to see, right? Social media, the number of sober accounts, sober curiosity. There are are, um, movements that have come up like sober curiosity, like sober October, like dry July, like dry January. All of these things point towards addiction being less stigmatized and less of a a them thing. Whereas, you know, we're starting to see slowly, I think, that alcohol use disorder is a spectrum. It's not just the unfortunate who got addicted and everyone else who's fine. It's like, no, this exists on a spectrum and you don't have to be the prototypical, you know, brown bag in an alley person to to validate you getting sober and not drinking. So I think, and and then there's the whole non-alcoholic drink industry, which has just exploded. So I think all these things point directionally towards it getting better, but who knows? I think we, we still have some time before we can really see if that's true or not. I think, you know, mental health is certainly not, mental illness, problems with mental health, of course, aren't going anywhere. And same with trauma. And that's so linked up with addiction. So. Well, you're part of the solution. You're helping a lot of people. Good stuff, Laura. 
Laura, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions okay. to 15 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready, I think. All right. Uh, Laura, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? It can actually be kind of funny sometimes. I didn't know that. <laughs> what's your best sober moment? Every birthday of my daughter is, a, is the best. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Oh, I'm so boring, man. I just like Diet Coke. I have one right here. All right, here's a light one. What's the point of life, Laura? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, shit. Um, it's like, you know, this is coming and I still don't know what to say. I think it's got something to do with loving on people. All right, yeah. What's your favorite 80s or 90s band? Uh, I gotta say The Cure is in there. Yeah. If you had a pet turtle, what would you name it? Rocky. Uh, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Yes. All yes. right. <laughs> Correct. And Laura, <laughs> last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? Open your mouth to someone, anyone. Gotcha. And before we depart, Laura, give us your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you are not planning things before noon to accommodate for your hangovers. Yeah, that, that checks out. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Again, the book thank is you. Push Off From Here. I'm sure it's available in many outlets on Amazon and all that stuff. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation together. I've been hearing your name in this space for several years now. It, it's great to connect with you Likewise. finally. Yeah, thank you. You too. Listeners, today is the absolute best day to quit drinking. An obvious reason for this is the progressive nature of alcohol or alcoholism or the addiction or the disease or whatever you want to call it. So today is the best day to quit drinking. Another reason why today is the best day to quit drinking is we've never had so many resources available to us. Recovery 10, 15, 30, 40, 50 years ago was church basements, bad coffee, and stale donuts. Now I do want to be clear, every Tuesday night, I go to an AA meeting in a church basement with bad coffee, and if I'm lucky, there are donuts. So I'm not dogging that. I really enjoy that format. It works for me. But I want to say there are so many resources that weren't around five years ago, 10 years ago. And after Laura and I hit the stop button on the interview, we talked about this. You know, um, we both quit drinking in the same month. And when I looked on, on iTunes for podcasts, you know, I, I didn't really find one that tracked or landed with me. Now it could have been, I was focusing on the differences and not the similarities. Maybe there's a part of that in there, but I think there was only five or six recovery podcasts and, and they were good. Don't get me wrong. But today, man, I think there's a hundred, two, three, 400 recovery podcasts. There's a list each year. That's like the top, I think the Tempest puts it out the top 50 recovery podcasts. And it's so refreshing to see that there are new, there are new projects starting daily. Um, in the recovery arena. I absolutely love it. And thank you, Tempest, for including us on that list each time. So Recovery Elevator, what are the reasons that are holding you back from drinking? Again, from this intro, I can tell you right now, it's probably the environment that you've created yourself is a part of that. So we are tasked to create a life where alcohol is no longer needed. Now that won't happen overnight. It's going to be a series, dozens, hundreds of small individual steps and decisions to arrive at this moment of wholeness, which is always in flux. I want you to keep that in mind as well. So 
Recovery Elevator, Rule 22. Let's lighten up and never take ourselves too seriously on this journey. I love you guys. Stop it.